to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. Infrastructure. Consistent with its Latin root infra, meaning below, infrastructure is a subject that usually stays underneath the surface. And in ordinary times, it doesn't make for the most engaging cocktail hour conversation. But that has changed of late, in no small part due to the efforts of my guest today. U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana was an integral member of a group of 10 senators, five from each party, who led the charge to pass the $1 trillion federal infrastructure package, a landmark funding bill whose far-reaching effects are only to be seen. In this special edition of City Speak, Senator Cassidy joins me to explain how this group of senators got the package across the finish line and what it promises for cities and towns across the country. Stay tuned. City Speak is sponsored by Batoni Architects. Batoni Architects is a full-service architectural and interior design practice predicated on the notion that architecture is both a practical and impactful social endeavor that has the potential to transform the way we experience the world around us. You can explore their projects at Batoni Architects. That's B-I-T-T-O-N-I architects.com. Senator Cassidy, welcome to City Speak. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. You were an essential part of a group of 10 senators that was instrumental in passing the $1 trillion infrastructure bill. That group comprised five Democrats and five Republicans, collectively representing cities and towns as disparate as the Gulf Coast cities of your home state of Louisiana to the rural farming towns of Montana. Take us inside the negotiating room. How did you manage to reach an agreement? So it's interesting because the process really began at a retreat sponsored by a group called No Labels in Annapolis. Larry Hogan hosted us. And we had Democrats, Republicans, senators, representatives, people from outside speaking. Afterwards, I got together with Josh Gottheimer and Brian Fitzpatrick, some others. And we just started putting things together, a spreadsheet, if you will, based upon legislation that had already been done by the committees. And at some point, Gottheimer, I'm going to clean up his language a little bit. He goes, Cassidy, why are we putting all this money in there for capping oil wells? I don't have oil wells. A very sanitized version of Gottheimer. And I said, Josh, why do we have so much money for Northeastern Rail? I see your point. Pencil in what you want. And so you'd hear criticisms. Why do we have so much for Western water? Or why do we have so much for coastal restoration? But all of us recognize we're a big country with as disparate as that group was, the needs are reflective of those differences. Mm -hmm. And so it really was a kind of coming to a common understanding. Now, I started with me speaking with Gottheimer and Fitzpatrick, but that same spirit of trying to understand the other's perspective continued when we migrated into the group of 10 and it worked really well. You are someone who is very familiar with the ways in which the aging legacy infrastructure of this country has to be regularly updated and retrofitted to suit emerging needs. And a story about you that I recently read and loved is how after Hurricane Katrina, you worked to convert an abandoned Kmart in Baton Rouge into a temporary hospital drawing on your knowledge and training as a medical doctor. So in that same spirit, is there a single project from the infrastructure package, let's say even from your home state, that you see as representative of the direct 
visible impact that the package will have in revitalizing American cities and towns? I could give you a legion of answers, but let me give you one that just stands out for its poignancy. We have $65 billion in that package to provide all Americans with access to affordable high-speed internet. So I'm speaking in Alexandria, a city in central Louisiana, and a fellow walks up from a Voiles parish. Now, a farming community which has these beautiful little towns, and you go down Main Street, and there'd be a broad veranda with kind of a curved porch. You could imagine that 100 years ago, a young couple courting on the steps. But people have left. And now there's a certain kind of downtroddenness associated with it. And the guy comes up to me, goes, you, my daughters live away. But if we had high-speed internet, they would move back. And I used to work with AT&T, so I know what it takes. And this bill sounds like it will address it. And he goes, if we build out that internet, they will come. Now, there's a lot of layers to they will come. Most immediately, he meant his daughters and his grandchildren would come back and they could zoom from that beautiful veranda, as opposed to living in a city with mask mandates and traffic that they'd rather not put up with. But it could also be the revitalization of the economics of the community, where the distribution center in this centrally located parish would locate there with their high-speed internet. They could just beam everything, but they need that high-speed internet. So I think that has the potential to revitalize small-town U.S., to take some of the congestion out of our cities, to allow people to recover a wonderful way of life, of broad verandas and no mask mandates and minimal traffic as they Zoom from home to commute into work. So I could talk about everything else, the bridges, the roads, the coastal restoration, the flooding mitigation. That, I think, is what we had to do for our fellow Americans living in rural areas. For a long time now, states and local governments have played the leading role in getting things built in cities and towns in the U.S., whether that's physical buildings through their land use powers or large-scale transportation projects. This wasn't always the case, however. Earlier in the 20th century, the federal government had a strong hand in the built environment of the U.S., such as through the Public Works Administration under FDR in the 30s or the interstate highway system under Eisenhower in the 50s. Does the recent federal infrastructure package herald a return to this earlier vision of the federal government? So it's interesting, Max. I think we evolved from that heavier hand to more of a spirit of federalism because it was recognized a lack of local input was threatening. I mean, truly threatening. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you've been to New Orleans, but the I-10 goes on the edge of the French Quarter. So the French Quarter is bounded by the Mississippi River on one side and the I-10 on the other. The initial plan was to run the I-10 interstate between the French Quarter and the Mississippi River. So when you go to Café de Mont and have those wonderful beignets with the Café au lait, that would have been I-10. The story goes, so I'm told a woman, probably my age now, so I shouldn't call her elderly, who said, this isn't right, and started a local movement to require the relocation of that. Now, I think that the locals having input is occasionally an aggravation. Occasionally, it's unnecessary delays because things people can fight over trivial things. 
but by and large, a net positive. So your historic communities are not split up. Then I could go on. So I would like to think that we would retain the federalism, but I do think this infrastructure bill was long overdue in terms of a major infusion of federal cash to get lots of good projects done. I'll just say one more thing. We also have to realize that the federal government bears the consequence of an underinvestment in certain projects. So CBO, Congressional Budget Office, estimates we're going to spend $17 billion a year over the next 10 years for mitigation after hurricanes and major water events. So we put $2.5 billion towards coastal restoration. I can show you projects in Louisiana, but most notably the levees around New Orleans, that cost $14 billion to build, but kept New Orleans dry when Hurricane Ida just hit. Now, we spent $20 billion in recovery of New Orleans in 2005. That would probably be $40 billion now. We invested $14 billion. Let's just say we just saved another $40 billion. We can put in, and I can give you other examples, the flood mitigation systems, which kept 10,000 homes from flooding. Think of the money that the National Flood Insurance Program saved, not to mention the increased economic activity as the businesses and individuals can continue with their economic life as opposed to living in tents for a while. So I do think that the federal investment in infrastructure needs to be there. It must respect the spirit of federalism, but it needs to be there. Looking now to the road ahead, the law's been passed and signed by the president, the money's been set aside, and now all that remains is to actually spend the funds and deliver on the countless projects it promises. Seems like an easy task. What in your mind is the optimal allocation of responsibility between the federal government, the states, and localities in beginning the real work of carrying out the projects contained in the package? Well, it depends. About 50% of the money is going through formula funding, meaning that money for roads and bridges is going down to state departments of transportation, as in my state. And they have their own mechanism that split it up between the different regions based on certain factors. So that's formula funding. We've got the pathway. Let's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Let's keep going. Now, some of the programs are brand new programs. The money for high-speed internet, as an example. It's more of a grant program. How do we make that work? So I think that you're not going to have a single answer for that. And in other programs, there was guidance given. So I'm most familiar with the guidance given for things pertaining to Louisiana. But for example, the money for coastal restoration is to prioritize communities which have been hit by natural disasters in the last six years. Of course, You don't want to give coastal restoration money to Wyoming. You want to give it to a place that needs it. And the flood mitigation money, there's $3.5 billion or so for flood mitigation, prioritizing areas that have flooded in the last 10 years. Makes sense. Now, by the way, uh, my state's going to be affected, but so would riverine communities. The Appalachians are a site of major league flooding problems. So it isn't just that it's going to be the coastal areas. It can also be riverine, but most likely it won't be Kansas. On the other hand, if you're talking about Western water projects, there's a clear sort of way to tee that up. So I do think the legislation gives guidance as to how the money should be spent. And then after that guidance, there will have to be an understanding, if you will, between state, local, and federal. Senator Cassidy, it was a pleasure having you on. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to City Speak with Max Masuda-Farkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and sound production by Greg Gordon-Smith and Source Code Creative Media. Be sure to visit urbanized.city, now featuring commercial real estate news in Atlanta, Austin, Chicago, Detroit, LA, and New York. Ooh.